Let's open up our Bibles. Luke chapter 10 is where we are going to be. If you need a Bible, raise your hand um, and these guys will get one to you. We're going to be Luke chapter 10 verses 21 to 24. So in the New Testament, it's Matthew, Mark and then Luke's gospel. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Read it, pray, and and we will uh, dive in for the morning. It says this, In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, this being Jesus, and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. Would you pray with me? God, we are amazed in awe. To be among those who see and hear the things disclosed in this text, the things disclosed in the Son. I thank you for your work in our lives, bringing us to see in the face of Christ the glory of God. But I'm praying for those that are still on the fence on that. Glad you brought him here. And I pray, Jesus, that you would use our time together this morning to awaken. I pray that even through the word and page of our Bible, they would see the face of Christ. They would hear the words of Christ and be saved. God, draw near to us, we pray. In your name, amen. Um, I wonder, I mean, just quick introductory reflection. I know the text probably moved too quickly by you, but one of the immediate implications of this text that we have before us this morning is, wow, what a privilege we are experiencing in these moments. I mean, what this text is saying just off the front is in these moments, right here, this room, this place, this morning, God the Father is drawing near to us by his spirit and drawing us uh, nearer towards his son, revealing his son to, him, to us. I'm sorry. 
In these moments, this text would seem to be saying, Jesus is drawing near to us by His Spirit and disclosing, revealing to us more of His Father. In these moments, if I could be so bold, it's almost as if the kings and prophets of old are turning in their grave with longing, wishing that they could be a part of what you and I get to be a part of here this morning, namely seeing Jesus in His Word, hearing Jesus in His Word. I mean, he says it right there, and we may come out at the end with some reflections on it, but I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, did not see it, to hear what you hear, they didn't hear it. What a privilege we have to stand on this side of the cross, this side of the Messiah, see and hear what we do. I mean, Peter in his epistle would take it even further than kings and prophets of old. He would say, listen, when you sit around and have your little Bible study, when you have some guy in a a, a little church open up the word and, and expound it to you, I want you to know what's happening. It's as if up in heaven the angels are kind of clambering to the edge and looking over, hoping to get a glimpse of what is about to be revealed in this place as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are angels who live in the presence of God. I mean, their whole life is spent uh, uh, looking, gazing upon the glory of God, and yet. Peter would say, when Jesus shows up, when the gospel is proclaimed, they're going, there's something there we hadn't seen. And we want to catch a a, a greater, a deeper glimpse of it. So what a privilege to get into God's word. What a privilege to be here in this place with you this morning. My hope is that if you come in a bit sleepy, a bit tired, maybe you're up late like I was, my hope is that man, you would leave exhilarated and amazed at what sovereign grace has made possible uh, for you in this place. So let me um, show you kind of where we're going to go. We're going to make our way through this text bit by bit. Uh, We're going to proceed through three headings. First, the Trinity's thrilling joy. That's verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 21. Then second, we'll look at the Son's stunning purview. That's verse 22. And third and finally, we'll just kind of close out uh, with a quick reflection on our blessed eyes. That's verse 23 and 24. So first, The Trinity's thrilling joy, that's verse 21. Let's look at it a little bit more closely. Um, The first thing as we kind of get into our text that we notice, I think, the first thing that confronts us is actually this uh, rejoicing of Jesus here. If you see it there um, in verse uh, 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced. Now, There are at least three reasons why this idea of Jesus rejoicing here, this picture of him rejoicing here, ought to capture our attention. I'm going to lay those out for you. 
Uh, for one thing, um, and again, sometimes I hesitate to do this, but uh, I try to not bring in original language stuff unless I feel like it's beneficial to you. But I will tell you this. In the uh, original language, this word means a whole lot more than just rejoice. It's a much deeper, much fuller word uh, in the background there. So if you look back up in verse 20, there's kind of the standard word for rejoice in the Greek used there two times as he's saying, hey, listen, disciples, don't rejoice in this, rejoice in that. And then it goes, in that same hour, now Jesus is rejoicing, but the word chosen here kind of turns up the wattage, if you will. It's a word that, according to the lexicons I looked at, means something like to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be overjoyed. One commentator says this, Rejoiced is far too colorless a translation for the Greek word here, which means a positive exultation, or to be, this is where I got the title of this heading, thrilled with joy. Thrilled. So, If I were to put it into California context, it might be like the difference between saying, oh, I'm happy and oh, I'm amped or oh, I'm stoked or oh, you know, whatever we talk about. But turning up the wattage, if you will, in the language to explain something even more is happening in these moments. That's reason number one for this rejoicing capturing our attention. But now, secondly... Did I? Something happened to me? Am I echoing more? No? Oh, okay. Uh, Secondly, I wanted you to notice uh, something else as well. Um, And this you wouldn't catch unless you were looking for it throughout all the Gospels. But this is actually one of only two times where our Savior in the Gospels is said to be explicitly rejoicing. The other time would be John 11.15. Um, As another commentator writes, this in our text here this morning is the most exultant description of Jesus in all the scriptures. This is as happy as he's ever described. Now, to be clear, uh, we are not saying by this that Jesus is everywhere else, somewhat miserable, man of sorrows. Yes, we know. But at the same time, listen, we know what? That joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And who's the one who dispenses the Spirit, has the Spirit? It's Jesus. So this is not, I'm not trying to say that uh, there are two points in Jesus' life where he was actually happy, and the rest he was just a pretty miserable guy. No. But I am trying to say that for whatever reason, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there are really only two times where the gospel authors say, yes, we've got to record that. We've got to get that um, on the page, if you will. So it ought to draw us in. It ought to capture our attention. And there's a third reason why um, we ought to be captivated by this. And that is because, if you noticed, and I'll point it out for you here, Jesus actually isn't the only one rejoicing. It's the entire trinity that kind of makes this cameo appearance, if you will, right here in verse 21, before you know a lot of the Trinitarian theology had ever been worked out in the epistles and beyond. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit rejoicing all together in this 
single verse. I'll show you. What do we read there at the beginning? But that he, the son, rejoiced in or through the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of the verse, attention turns to the father and Jesus in our text, it's translated as uh, gracious will. You know, Jesus talks about the father's gracious will again in the original language. Better translation would be the father's good pleasure. Good pleasure or satisfaction. Jesus rejoicing in the spirit talks about the father's good pleasure, satisfaction or the things that he rejoices in. They're all participating in this joy in this very moment. And now, therefore, the question that we should have uh, starting to rise up in our minds is what? What about? What is this? all about if this joy here is intense in its expression rare in its recording shared in its experience among the trinity what is the object of this joy why are they so happy why is this the most exultant description of jesus in all the gospels what is it all about well in a word i think we could say sovereign grace Sovereign grace. But I'll unfold that a bit more for you as you look at verse 21 uh, in particular and see what Jesus actually identifies as the object of his joy. The reason for his rejoicing. He says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. These things, probably the stuff about the kingdom. Remember, the disciples are coming in from the mission field. They've just been proclaiming the good news and all this stuff. So, God, I thank you that you have hidden this stuff about the kingdom and whatnot and and what I've come to do from the wise and, and, and the intelligent and understanding, and you've revealed them instead to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or such was your good pleasure. Now that is interesting. I want to make sure we understand it before I ask even yet another question. If I'm understanding Jesus here correctly, What I'm hearing him say is that on the one hand, God is hiding himself from uh, uh, the wise and understanding. He's hiding the truths of the kingdom and his son from uh, the wise and the understanding, from the intelligentsia, from the elite of society, from the people that you and I would probably think are most worthy of a kingdom. Jesus is rejoicing that God has not revealed his kingdom to them. But instead, on the other hand, we see that God is revealing the truths of his kingdom and son to little children or this idea of infants or babies or helpless, needy, desperate, low class people. The people who the world would just pass on by without a second glance. These are the people whom God comes and reveals his son to and his kingdom to. And and it seems to me 
that Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, look at this and go, yes. What an amazing thing. They leap for joy. Heaven, as it were, shakes with rejoicing at this reality. And so now the next question to ask, I think, and hopefully you're following with me in it is, why? Why is that something that they would be rejoicing at so fully? With such zeal, with such wattage turned up. Why? Well, I think, um, perhaps there are many reasons, but the thing that I think is at the bottom of it all is this. What God, the Father, Son, Spirit are up to, as explained in verse 21, is essentially the reversal of all that went wrong with the world. Back in Genesis 3. Back when man decided, listen, we don't need to listen to God. We don't need God. We can be God. We can, we can be our own God. We can make our own destiny. Listen, I don't need the creator. I am a creator. I create my story. I create my destiny. We made a run on God's throne. We didn't want him in the world he created. We're like little kids playing make-believe, acting like we can do all these things, when in reality we can't even take the next breath without God upholding our lungs and keeping our heart beating. This Imagine self-sufficiency, autonomy, this arrogance that characterizes the human race from that point forward, the insanity that's been embedded in our nature. I will be king. I don't need you. That's what's being reversed by sovereign grace in this text. That's why Jesus is rejoicing the father the spirit rejoicing i don't know if you remember i can't remember the actual verse but in proverbs uh, god outlines seven things he says that i i hate you want to know what heads the list haughty eyes eyes that look down that get up on their little high tower and look down at all the little peons below I don't need God. I am God. I'm the wise. I'm the intelligent. I'm the one this world finds worthy. Why would I need him? Last time, it was two weeks ago now, when we looked at the verses before this, I uh, mentioned an article written about Michael Jordan. Now, I don't mean to pick on him again, but... Uh, there's something from that article I, I, I didn't bring out that I think is especially relevant at this point. Uh, if you recall, the article was about how, at least at the time it was written, Jordan um, was really struggling in his retirement and just kind of restless. He had wrapped up his whole identity, his whole joy, kind of in the game. And when his body started to go, when when things weren't working right anymore, and he finally had to make an exit, even after how many times he tried to return and go back, 
He just, he was restless. Couldn't get over it. Couldn't square with the reality of his own mortality. There's something in the article, though, that I didn't uh, bring out at that time. And I think it's relevant here. I wonder if you know what uh, Jesus, or I'm sorry, what, Jesus, what Jordan's uh, code name was among his security team when he would travel. You want to know what it was? When they were traveling around all around the world and Jordan's going, he's got his security squad. What was his code name? Yahweh. Yahweh. The covenant name of God in the Hebrew, which means I am who I am. You want to know why maybe Jordan struggles to face up to his own mortality? It's because for so long he thought he was, he lived like he was, he made believe that he was a God. And he's not alone. Uh, Perhaps rappers are an easy target, but regardless, these things are incredible to me. I mean, I don't know if you've heard of, you probably have, Kanye West. I, I, don't, don't, I don't know any of his songs or anything like that, but I just remember seeing a poster. And I was like, what is that? It, was, it says, you know, his, 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 the name he refers to himself affectionately by is, is Jesus. Okay? There was this poster of him like, in this like, crucifix form, being almost like kind of ascending up to the Father. And on the record... Uh, um, titled by that name, Jesus, there's a track on there uh, entitled, I Am a God. Or we could talk about Jay-Z, who the world admires and thinks is amazing, and you want to know what he affectionately refers to himself as? The Hova, or Jehovah, coming from, again, one of the ways that, that we would speak of God's name in the Old Testament. Jehovah. Just these guys on top of the world looking down on everyone else as if they are sitting on the very throne of God. It is true what Paul says in Romans 3.18, is it not? That there is no fear of God before their eyes. The only thing before their eyes is themselves. These are the sorts of people that the world um, runs to, praises, acclaims. Their names are written in the lights. If we were gathering people for our kingdom, those would be the kind of guys, the billionaires, the superstars, the rock, whatever it is. Those would be the guys we would, 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 would bring in. But the amazing thing about our text is that God, because he's so disgusted by this, because he wants to reverse all that went wrong when man started to pretend to be God, passes over the pomp, passes over the arrogance, passes over the make-believe, and these people who, who, who live on leased land and borrowed time, though they act like they're not, and instead he calls into his kingdom the most unsuspecting, Individuals, the lowly, the weak, 
little kids, the desperate. There's this amazing text in Hebrews 11. I'm getting off script here, but I love this. It talks about, the, the Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, right? And at the end, it talks about these saints who, um, uh, even though they were suffering and struggling, and even though they were living in holes in the ground, it just says, listen, these are men of whom the world is not worthy. And I said, how awesome, because the world would look at the people that God calls into his kingdom and say, listen, they're not worthy of the world. Get them out of here. Let's, let's push them into one or two neighborhoods so we don't have to actually see them or face them. And let's live over here with all the people we like. Those people not worthy of the world. God reverses this and says, no, no, no. The world is not worthy of you. So I've called you into something so much more. You are coming into my kingdom and my kingdom is eternal. Not shaky with the next change of hand or the next wind of circumstance, but eternal. And it's all by sovereign grace. Is this not what the Gospel of Luke has really been all about up to this point? I mean, this is it. This is not new. shouldn't be new for those of you who've been with us, right? I mean, what is the Gospel of Luke but just a riff on this master theme? God says, I'm going to send my son. Where am I going to put him? In a palace? No. How about a manger? How about with the animals? Okay, and when I want people to come and celebrate his arrival, who am I going to bring in? Royalty? The, the leaders and the, the princes of Israel? No. How about the shepherds? This guy's out in the field. No one else notices or cares about. And when my son goes and he grows up and he, and he moves out into his ministry, who are the people he's going to be rolling with? Who are the people he's going to be hanging with around the table and doing life with? Is it going to be the scribes and the Pharisees? No. How about tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, the unclean, lepers, Samaritans, even Gentiles? How about that? The broken, the beat up, the downcast, the lower class. God is... In verse 21, overturning the madness of this world by way of sovereign grace. I'm going to tie the tongues of those who boast in themselves. And I'm going to start to loose the tongues of those who boast in me. Because they know what I did here could not have come from anywhere else. I love um, what John Piper has to say on this verse. This is... This is pretty awesome. The point of this, he says, speaking about verse 21, is not that there are only certain classes of people who are chosen by God. The point is that God is free to choose the least likely candidates for his grace. Just as with the election of Abraham, the unlikely idolater from Ur, and Isaac, the miracle-born son of old age, and Jacob, the younger of twins, God contradicts, here's the key line, God contradicts what human merit might dictate. God contradicts what human merit might dictate. He hides from the wise and reveals to the most helpless and unaccomplished. When Jesus sees the Father freely enlightening and saving people whose only hope is free grace, 
He exults in the Holy Spirit and takes pleasure in his father's election. There was something as I was preparing this and kind of thinking it over again this morning that came to my mind and I wanted to make sure I shared this with you. Um, when God talks about going to and, 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 and revealing himself to the little ones or the lowly, the weak, the nobodies, he is not trying to say that, listen, those people don't also try to be God. Those people aren't also trying to be a God in their own eyes. We all are. Don't think that we are the humble and the low. That's why he chose us, because we were so ready. No, no, no. We're trying to be God just like everyone else. The difference is, is that, is that no one in their right mind would, would actually think we could be a God. The difference is, if, if, if God moves on, say, the, the, the upper class, well, people just think, well, the upper class, it was their education that got them into their kingdom. It was their money. It was their, it was their talent. It was their skill. But when God goes to the lower, the dregs, and he draws on them and says, you're coming into my kingdom. No one in their right mind is going, man, they just did that by their own, their own elite status, their own ability. No one thinks that they, we could have done it. So he just reverses what happened in the fall. It's beautiful. Now, if I'm the disciples here and Jesus is sharing this with me, I'm not sure I like what I hear. Right? I mean, where am I in this whole exchange? It's not exactly flattering. He's saying, I thank you, God. I rejoice in you, Father, that you've hidden this stuff from the, the wise and the, the understanding. And you've revealed it to nobody's like these guys here. <laughs> You go, excuse me? I thought, I thought we were doing something pretty good here. I thought we were on to something. I mean, if you look at the context of this, right, it's that they just came off of uh, the mission field and they are reveling in what they accomplished. In his name, of course, but we accomplished it. It doesn't seem at first all that flattering to us and it's not but what we come to find is it's actually quite encouraging let me linger on this for a moment Uh, jesus is looking at him saying listen i'm glad that you guys are happy and all i'm glad that you uh uh, are rejoicing that the spirits are subject uh, to you in my name but Let's settle that joy in maybe a deeper, more stable place. Let's take that. Let, let's talk about how your names have been written in heaven. Let's talk about not what you have done for God, but what God has done for you. In sovereign grace. Let's talk about how. Let me share with you a little bit more. Expand on that. What that means. It means that God didn't write your name in heaven because, you know, it. It's, let's put it this way. It's not like the names on the plaque in the Hall of Fames of this world or the names on the stars in the Walk of Faith in Hollywood or Walk of Faith, Walk of Fame in Hollywood. No, that's not how you get your name in heaven. Let me tell you something. It's sovereign grace that comes in to the little kids 
to the desperate, the, the needy, and the lowly, to people just like you. So if you're going to set your joy somewhere, set your joy in sovereign grace. Now, I love, there's this text in Acts 4.13 that's amazing. See, what God is doing here is, as I was kind of just saying, he is helping us and the world see, wow, okay, wait a minute. Whatever's happening to this lower class, only God could have done that. He's turning the world right side up, and people around us are going to get moments of clarity when they see nobodies (laughs) and losers uh, doing amazing things in the name of Christ. But there's this awesome text, Acts 4.13. I brought it up before because it's one of my favorites. It's when the spirit has fallen, the early church is on the move, and the apostles are out spreading the gospel, and they're being imprisoned, they're being persecuted, and the religious leaders uh, are, 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 are on the attack. Peter stands up with his boldness and proclaims and declares, and so are the other guys. And then we read this in Acts 4.13. Now, when they, the leaders in Israel, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, in other words, little children, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You catch that? They're going, now, wait a minute. Those are common uneducated men doing powerful things in the name of Jesus. Ain't no way they did that. Ain't no way they got that started. God must be in this somehow. I mean, that is exactly, that is precisely what happened in my own story. People in my landscape architecture lab, which was my major at the time, who knew me before Christ, saw what happened after Christ got a hold of me and said, no way did Nick make that happen. I know that guy. That guy's a loser. What accounts for that change? What accounts for that strength? What accounts for that peace or that love? So four or five other students come to Christ. Same thing with my parents. No way did our son do this. What did you do with my son? No, it's what God did with your son, mom, dad. Give their lives to Christ. There's moments of sanity, moments of clarity that break into the world because of what God is doing in verse 21. When he passes over the wise and the intelligent and he grabs a hold of the little children. The world goes, wow, okay. Maybe God is for real. Maybe we do need him. Maybe there is something to this. Now, you might say, gosh, this still is not encouraging to me at all. Uh, I don't like this idea that God has laid his hands on me because I am particularly uh, unintelligent, particularly uh, lower class. I don't, that doesn't make me feel good. The world tells us. Here's how you're going to get your happiness. You're going to get it by other people making much of you. You're going to get it by the praise coming your way, by people massaging your self-esteem. But I'm telling you, 
that this news here is actually some of the greatest news in all the world. There's incredible freedom in letting go of this facade and actually owning up to who we are in our desperate place in uh, the sight of God. That we can stop pretending. We can stop the make-believe. And furthermore, what's, this was the astounding thought for me. Uh, what this text is saying. I don't know if you've ever been like me and you've thought, man, I am beyond the reach of grace. I am beyond hope at this point. Because of my past, because of my sin, because of the filth that I've been in, because of my unintelligence and my inability to really memorize the word like those, like Tolu when he gets up here and preaches, or, or to pray like this or that guy when he prays, or, because I, I don't have the, 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 the uh, abilities. Because of these things, I'm beyond the reach of grace. I'm without hope. I feel like there's no way God would draw me into his kingdom and let me be there with him. Well, the amazing thing is that this text actually is saying to you and to me that it is precisely those people who might be prone, tempted to think that they are beyond the reach of grace, that are actually in straight in the, the middle of the crosshairs of grace. That God, far from being removed from those people, is actually closer to them than perhaps anyone else. That those are the types of individuals he goes to. The guilty and the lowly and the unintelligent and the weak. He rejoices in pouring out grace in those moments. In doing things that the world and you will know only he could have done. That looses your tongue to boast, not in yourself any longer, but in him. This is why Paul comes out saying in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, some of you might know this verse, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. The world is, is, is filled with people boasting in their strengths and hiding their weaknesses. Not going to post that on my Facebook page or my Instagram photo, that fight I just had with my wife or what I look like in the morning without makeup. Or Not going to post that. Paul says... I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. We just live in a different world as Christians. We're just not like the others because God has set his hand on us, revealed to us his son. Now, um, if you're worried, as is typical, point one is the longest for me. Um, we're going to move quicker through these last two. Second, I said, so, so first heading there was the Trinity's thrilling joy. Now we move into what I would call the sun's stunning purview. This is verse 22. Look at it more uh, carefully with me here. All things have been handed over to me, Jesus says, by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. This is an amazing text because you almost can't figure out where the Father begins and where the Son begins and ends. And that's part of the point. Who's doing the revealing? I thought it was the Father in verse 21. Now it's the Son who's choosing to reveal. And what's being revealed? The Father revealing the Son or the Son revealing the Father or both and and all the above. It's this incredible harmony among the Father, Son, and Spirit in this work of redemption. Many scholars have spoken quite exaltingly of this single verse in Luke's Gospel. One goes so far as to identify it as, quote, perhaps the most important verse in the synoptics. Synoptic Gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is perhaps the, perhaps the most important verse, and they say that because of the, the understanding we get of Jesus, the person of Christ in these moments. Certainly, if you look carefully at it, it actually reminds us of stuff we see in John's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these sorts of statements are somewhat rare. John's Gospel, these statements are all over the place. It's interesting, if I could have your attention just for a brief moment. We're going to go seminary here. Um, John's Gospel, you might talk about his Christology or his explanation of Christ, his, his, his uh, teachings about the person and work of Jesus Christ. His Christology is, is what you might call heaven downward. I mean, he doesn't hold any punches about the majesty or the glory of Jesus. He comes out swinging, right? How does his gospel begin in John 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, who is the Word? Down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John just drops a bombshell in his first verses. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word is Jesus. Jesus is God. And then he just continues that on, as we'll see in his Gospel. But it's this heaven downward kind of Christology. Now, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go in the other direction, largely. They're going to move from the ground up. There's this more organic process to uh, how the uh, understanding of Jesus unfolds in the um, in the uh, Gospels. What we see is, and we've even seen it in in Luke already. You watch him develop. You watch him grow. He's a boy, and then and then he becomes a man. And people's awareness and understanding of who he really is and what he's come to do is developing. And they're always asking, who then is this? And they're coming up with different answers and slowly arriving at the truth. But then here in verse 22, one uh, scholar, one commentator refers to this verse as, bear with me, as a Johannine, a of John's gospel, a Johannine bolt, lightning bolt, from the synoptic Matthew, Mark, Luke, blue. That might not make sense, but what he's saying is, out of the blue sky of the synoptic Gospels, where there's more or less a ground-up Christology being developed, there's this, there's this lightning bolt coming from the storm cloud of John's Gospel, as it were. It's just saying, wait a minute, he is God. <laughs> 
And you don't get to the Father, but through him. Let me just read it to you again. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now let me show you some more of this from John's Gospel, just for the fun of it. John 1, verse 18, Jesus says, or or perhaps, I'm not positive actually the context, It might just be John. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Or John 6, 44. No one could come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 8, 19. The Pharisees said to Jesus, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Or, this is perhaps one of my favorites, John 14, 6 through 9. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then the conversation continues with his disciples. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, listen to this. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's amazing. And a bolt from that kind of storm cloud strikes in verse 22 of Luke's gospel. Now, what does that actually mean for us? What does it mean? Why is that so important? I'll tell you why it's so important for you and I. It means that, forgive me if this sounds uh, juvenile or, or, or elementary, but we're so prone to stray. It means you can't know God except through the Son. That God reveals Himself to the world within the sphere of His Son by mediation of His Son, through the lens of His Son. You don't come to know God. You can't come to know God rightly just by hanging out in creation or reading good philosophers or kind of taking a hodgepodge of all the major religions of the world, the only place that the Father is fully revealed is in and through His Son. And I know I just committed a capital offense in our culture. Culture adamantly opposed, allergic to statements about absolute truth, especially absolute truth statements that are exclusive and not tolerant or relativistic, pluralistic. But that's what God is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. And the world finds it offensive, but they ought not to. It is the most incredible, the most beautiful reality in all the world that God can be known through this man who walked the, 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 the streets of, of, of Israel, Jerusalem, Galilee, 
Because what do we learn about God if his revelation is centered in this man? It means that God wants to draw near. This is what they were talking about together for the, or, uh, foster together last night. God draws near to the broken. He is not afraid of the mess. Your mess and my mess, orphans and widows, their mess. He comes near. It says that he wants to walk with you in the midst of the valley, of the shadow. It says he wants to get into the pain and bring healing. It says he loves you so much, he is willing to lay down his life and take the wrath of God, shield you from the wrath of God. That's the sort of stuff that's being revealed to us of God the Father through the Son. It is not, it ought not to be offensive. What could be offensive about God so loved the world that he sent his only son, whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I did not come to judge the world, but that they might have life. And later, abundant life. And yet, that's just it, isn't it? Oh, so you're saying if I don't, Come to the sun, I'm going to perish? You're saying that if I don't receive him, that I'm going to pay for my sin? You're saying that I'm not all that already? He's saying, I mean, do you know who I am? Do you see the car I drive to my Fortune 500 company in the morning and then back home to my million dollar mansion at night? Do you know who I am? Need Jesus. I don't need. And their arrogance, their haughty eyes. God judges that by stepping away, hiding himself. But here's the amazing thing now, point three, our blessed eyes. And I'll just close here. Verses 23 and 24. The amazing thing is that a pray, a hope, a trust for us in this room. Our story isn't God pulling away and hiding himself. Our story is God drawing near. That Jesus has, in fact, chosen to reveal the Father to us. That we have seen the Father's heart in the ministry of the Son. And we've been blown away. Have you had those moments? You had those moments where you go, I cannot believe God would come near to me. I cannot believe that he, you mean to tell me he accepts me where I'm at. That I'm going to clean myself up. That he comes into it. He'll do the cleaning. You mean to tell me that he's, he's not ashamed to walk by my side in this. Even when all the religious and all the people say, you hang out with who? He says, yeah, that's right. I came not for those who think they're healthy, but for those who know they're sick. You go, wow. You have those moments, tears streaming down your face. I can't believe Jesus would give his life for my sin. I can't believe he would secure me for all eternity. I can't believe that I get to see these things. That's verses 23 and 24. Jesus has moved on your heart. Jesus has opened out the realities of his kingdom to you. He's shown you the heart of his father. 
It's amazing there. I wonder if you caught it. But beginning of verse 23, it says, Now Jesus kind of models this for his disciples. What he's talking about. And Luke highlights this by saying, listen, Jesus turns and what what does it say? Um, Turning to the disciples, he said privately. He highlights the fact that Jesus kind of has this private conversation. As if to say, listen, you get access to me that not everyone else does. This is sovereign grace. Some I'm hiding myself from. You I am disclosing my heart to. Blessed are your eyes that see this. And your ears that hear this. At the end of the day, what Jesus is trying to do is actually summon us, invite us into that joy we saw at the beginning, his joy, God's joy. That's really what most of this has been about, believe it or not. Has been Listen, where are you putting your joy? Where are you finding joy? Because back up in verse 20, he's saying, not in what you do, but that your names are written in heaven. Namely, what my Father has done in sovereign grace for you. And then he shows them, verse 21, what it looks like to rejoice in that sovereign grace. Jesus himself exults with a thrill of joy in these realities. And then, verses 23 and 24, he says, now, come on in. I mean, don't you feel blessed? Or again, in the Greek, makarios, deeply and supremely happy. That's where we are. The joy of God is ours. We enter in. You're no way. How come I get to see? How come I get to be told that the Father loves me? That the Son died for me? That the Spirit is with me, abiding? How come I get to know that? And all of a sudden you stop worrying about all the stuff you're able to do or not able to do. And you start glorying and boasting and exulting in what God has done for you in sovereign grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us. You know what? It's okay. Let my life be a platform for your praise. Not my own. If that means boasting in my weaknesses, like Paul, and telling everyone, man, I used to be a murderer and a persecutor of the church. I was a loser. Owning up to those things because it portrays, it puts on display what you can do with a sinful life, what you can do with the weak and the broken. God, let us be that platform for your praise. We just want to sing in that chorus as well. Thank you for reversing the curse and the fall. Thank you for turning the world right side up in our hearts. Forgive us when we go back to the ways of the world. Help us even now, God, to rejoice in all that you are and all that you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.